The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. After we had uh, surveyed the the passage, we were drawing a couple of uh, additional points, further observations, and a second point here. A second point had um, gotten us looking, particularly at the passage in Romans um, nine six, um, and we were doing that particularly because of the pattern that we found in First Corinthians ten. Um, 1 through 13, that there's an emphasis on the one hand on the all, the all of the covenant, the all enjoying covenant privilege and the some who fall away. And that uh, we're using then the Romans 9, 6 passage um, as Paul's expression of the, um, let's just get that up here again, as Paul's expression um, uh, of the principle that appears to be involved in, in both these passages, the principle that uh, not all, not all Israel, uh, not all of Israel is Israel, nor uh, because they are seed of Abraham are they children. And we were making the point uh, then that Paul even uses uh, the categories of covenant, the vocabulary of covenant privilege to make a distinction um, between seed and seed, children and children, uh, promise and promise even, uh, as that is, and so there's a tension, if you will, um, a dialectic, if we use that word carefully, that, that's built into the vocabulary itself, and that uh, serves Paul in the concern that he has to try to bring to expression what in some uh, respects is just beyond our grasp, and that is the... Uh, uh, the inscrutable sovereignty of God's electing purpose. And uh, what I should have gone on to say, um, just um, drawing attention to that point, that while this is, is language that is uh, particularly applied to Israel as the covenant of people, um, Paul, writing then in 1 Corinthians 10, and our writer in the, in the passages that we're looking at in Hebrews, that principle carries over for them to the new covenant now. It's not as if uh, this, if you will, this dialectic, which applies to the old covenant, is, is taken away under the new covenant. That continues in effect so that we can say on the basis of, uh, we, we can, um, to capture this point, using the, the, the language or the, or the thought of Romans 9, 6, uh, that the teaching uh, of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, remember those things of the Old Covenant happen typically. They happen as examples for the us, of the humes, the, the humes of, uh, of, the, of the New Covenant, um, the, uh, so that we can, we can coin as a principle in that, in that light uh, what, uh, th- and put things this way, that not all in the church are the church. 
not all of the church are the church. And this is such a crucially important uh, consideration for a proper uh, ecclesiology, a proper uh, covenant understanding of the new covenant people of God, if I could be redundant. Um, It it, it undercuts... uh, um, all efforts to secure ecclesiology uh, uh, somehow on the basis of uh, a determining of uh, who are the elect and who are not the elect. Not all of the church are the church. Not all, in other terms, in the new covenant people of God are the new covenant people of God. Uh, applying the principle of Romans uh, 9.6. Let me just maybe... Go ahead just a little further here, um, round off this discussion. Uh, I think what, uh, um, that we are not just, uh, I, I think we could make this point simply on the textual considerations that we have set out before us, but I think it is then reinforced or made explicit if we look at the passage in 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. There uh, John says, they went out Ex Hamon, they went out from us because they were not from us. See, right there you have, if you will, um, um, uh, the tension or, or, or whatever, the, 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 the equivocation, if you will, on the ex Hamon. They went out from us because they were not from us. For if they were of us or from us, they would have. Uh, notice the, uh, the perfect tense of perseverance. Uh, they would have remained, now there is variation, meth hamon, with us. But uh, this happened in order that it might be manifest that uh, they all are not ex hamon, of us. Now you see, in this context, uh, uh, John is talking about those he has identified as the many antichrists that will come the Antichrist, we can say, uh, uh, tying to our Hebrews material, the Antichrist apostates. And he's saying then that they went out from us um, to show that they were not from us. That that might then be made clear, he accents at the end uh, of the description of, of the... Um, a construction. So you see that is des- what's being described here is precisely uh, what we had already drawn, drawn as a principle for the new covenant from the Romans 9-6 passage uh, of being in the church, of being in the covenant, but not of it, if you will. Of being with, uh, I mean, the prepositions here are in some sense uh, 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 flexible, um, we have to try, try, try to bring out the point. Uh, it's a being in but not of, a being with but not of. And um, so I, I, um, I think that the end is made very explicit for us in the, uh, in, in the new, so far as the new covenant situation is concerned and applies uh, to the situation that we have um, in Hebrews. It helps us to understand uh, the emphasis that we find in those passages, our key passages, on the actual covenant benefit that is enjoyed. All right, uh, go ahead, Karen, please.
Well, see, at this point, of course, the differentiation is between Isaac and Ishmael. But you see, that carries through so that at a later point in, in covenant history, uh, Paul can fairly write, not all of Isaac's seed are the seed of Isaac, in effect. Because um, the... And you, and you remember how that happens by the time you get to uh, just a few verses later, verses... Uh, no, hang on. Yeah, um, you, at any rate, whether it's here in chapter 11, you're with Rebecca and the twins, and it's Jacob and Esau. And so, and so, and, and the further, the differentiation carries down. So eventually in chapter 11, there are only 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's the remnant idea, which is uh, deter, the remnant determined by the election according to grace, of Romans 11.6. So um, the, 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 the differentiating uh, uh, election uh, producing uh, uh, the covenantal tension, if you will, um, is an ongoing uh, reality. Uh, it, but uh, before we jump back, uh, and I'm sorry for the disjointedness here. I should have gotten this in um, last time in its proper place. Uh, and um, but before we go back to where we were, uh, any questions here? Yes. No, I, I don't want to say that. I want to make the same distinction. Uh, not all in the covenant community are of the covenant community. Not all in the church are of the church because the the the, the citizenry. Uh, Maybe this, without, I hope this doesn't confuse the issue, the the kingdom is broader than the church, but the citizenry of the kingdom are found only in the church. Uh, But the church is under the new covenant administration of the kingdom. So that, uh, I I don't think you, um, I, I don't think you proceed constructively here by trying to make a distinction between covenant community and church. That's okay. You must do that. Yeah, but see, now that's where, that's where you want to apply the distinction between elect and church, not between church and covenant. Um, and, and I think that's, that you can, you can gloss Romans 9, 6. He's saying, uh, but you see, see, it even carries further. Not all of the elect are the elect even. The language is even going to the ambiguity is even going to carry through to the language of election, just the way in which Paul uses it, because that's the whole point. Israel is God's elect people, and he's saying, in effect, you have to make a distinction between uh, election as a covenant hyphen church principle and election in terms of the inscrutable sovereignty of God. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, yes. Yes, because see that constitutes the remnant as distinction distinct from the whole people. But so at that point you cannot make the distinction not all the elect are the elect. Yeah. At that point you have to say the elect is the elect. That's right. You you don't want to start you don't want um um see the ang- the 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 ultimate point of reference here is is God's Sovereign purposes, with re, re, which which is individually individual in its discriminating character, and you don't want to to make that ambivalent. That that is a sure point of reference, 
but it's beyond also our capacity to perceive. Uh, these, I think some these issues will be on uh, the, um, are very much on our agenda yet as we come back to where uh, I left us uh, last time. Any up, but any other questions on the these passages and the basic point that we're, we were are being trying to draw? Um, preach more on the book of Hebrews and these passages as applicable to the congregation and as not somehow um, a problem or somehow a sticky point for consistent Calvinists. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is a very consistent Calvinist. Um, uh, not, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I hope I don't come, in, in responding that way, I hope I don't come across as trivializing uh, uh, these are, these are, are, are uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a, these are deep, difficult matters, and yet in some respect, all of the depth and difficulty there is to point us to Jesus Christ, 13.8, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, the importance of perseverance is that it keeps me focused on Jesus today, just the point that, that Karen was, was bringing up earlier. Um, too often, uh, even good, solid, reformed folk are oriented to, uh, well, was I regenerate at some point in the past? As is my name written in the book of life, and, and we, are, we, 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 we are focused on a, uh, a once-for-all, we're oriented toward, toward something that has, has, has happened once for all in our past. Now, in fact, that's, it's crucial that that have happened. But our grasp on that is in terms of who we are today, where we are before the Lord today. Simply because it's not a matter, you see, of what happened once in the past, but it's a matter of, it's an f-hopox, to use the writer's own adverb. It's a once for all. And, the, and, 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 the, and the, the, the for all brings in the whole dimension of perseverance. But, um, uh, well, um, why don't I go on here? And uh, you, uh, Bruce's question has brought us back to where we were under C, looking at the Hebrews passages. We traced out a series of points, and we were in the midst of the, of the fifth a point where we've just been making the point um, um, that uh, that we we understand this uh, um, why the writer our, our appreciation of the wilderness motif the church as a wilderness con- uh, congregation especially enables us to um, to appreciate um, why the writer says what he does in our key passages. And, and that is, uh, to put it in less, uh, to say wilderness is to say the need for perseverance, uh, to press on toward the rest. Um, so we could say further then that the writer uh, knows that election and the certainty of salvation, the certainty of our salvation that ultimately originates in, in the in, in the electing, differentiating uh, uh, purpose of God, 
He knows that that certainty does not cancel out, we may put it this way, the seriousness of the present situation of the church. And that is the church, because it is in the wilderness, is in a genuinely threatened and exposed position. To be in the wilderness is to be in a position to, to, to be maintaining a position that is constantly threatened, constantly exposed. Uh, to put it in other terms, the writer knows very well he is remembering uh, what Jesus says in Matthew twenty four thirteen, and its uh, parallels, that it is only the one who stands firm to the end. It is only the one who endures to the end who will be saved. And the writer knows, as Jesus knows, that that enduring, that persevering, is not something that happens automatically. Just let me insert here on, on, on the side, if it needs to be said, that Calvinism, Strict Calvinism, the creedally oriented Calvinism, is not some kind of automatism. There's nothing automatic about it. So the writer exhorts, because he knows, you see, he must exhort. He exhorts the whole church. Not just some in the, in, in, in the church, but he exhorts the whole church. He exhorts all believers to perseverance through the wilderness. Or to bring in uh, another expression, he exhorts all in the church, chapter 12, 14, to that holiness without which no one will see God. Holiness is, you can see here, almost literally a sine qua non, without which not. Holiness, a sine qua non for seeing God in that eschatological rest. So, uh, particularly as um, we have in these passages as a first step in our analysis, uh, sought to underline the blessing that's involved, the, the, the privilege of, of the covenant privilege uh, that's there. Uh, we can look at the whole matter this way. Seen in terms of, of the blessings of salvation, the benefits of the covenant, um, what is, uh, is controlling, you see, in, 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 the, in the statements of the author, is that every gift of God carries with it a responsibility. Every gift involves a responsibility. The, the Germans have a neat way, or the German language has, has a neat way of saying it. I don't appreciate the way, or, or I can't go along with the way in, what, in which much German theology operates with this, but uh, every gaba involves an Aufgabe. 
gift and task are inseparable. That is the reality of the covenant. Or to put it in in other terms that you're perhaps familiar with working in Pauline theology, every indicative involves an imperative and the necessity of, of, of response to the comparative. And where that response, what, what, the, what the, the writer is wanting to impress on his readers is where that responsibility, defined by the imperative, where that responsibility is not met, where it is denied, the gift then loses its character as gift. Take away the Aufgabe and you no longer have the Gaba. Or... Um, Hang, uh, hang on to that question. I'll, I'll come back. Um, and I, and actually, I think I'll be uh, addressing it in just uh, a second. Uh, but looking at the, our, our, the, the emphasis we're making here uh, in terms of faith, pistis. Um, certainly, uh, what the, um, is, is uh, of the essence of faith, if you will, for the writer of Hebrews... Um, and he would simply be emphasizing, making emphatic a point that would be uh, um, uh, true of, of wherever um, uh, faith is being de- uh, developed, spoken of in the scriptures. Uh, in its character as total trust now, not as something somehow in addition or in, in tension with, with, with trust, but as trust in the God of the covenant the essence of faith is that it perseveres. The essence, the essence of faith is that it perseveres. Put it verbally, uh, genuine pistuo can only be conjugated in the perfect tense. So that ultimately, the test, the, the criterion of true faith What distinguishes true faith from its counterfeits? Another way of bringing out what we're getting at here is that the criterion of true faith is eschatological. That is, it is ultimately beyond our grasp. Um, True faith is known by the fact that it perseveres to the end. Or as Paul says, uh, I think we make appropriate use of of, of the statement here, as Paul says, the day will reveal it. The day will reveal it. And uh, I meant to uh, check it out and forgot it. Perhaps maybe I will uh, remember to do it next time. But uh, Calvin makes precisely this point, and it's very interesting in the section in the Institutes in Book 3, uh, beyond Chapter 11, just where he is dealing with the doctrine of justification by faith. And in that context, uh, discusses uh, faith. He makes precisely this point in so many words, that true faith, true justifying faith, is not simply that faith that has believed at one time and has then received justification, and that, of course, is true. 
But uh, the nature of genuine, true, justifying faith is that it perseveres to the end. Now, in the sixth place here, um, looking, uh, uh, making something which is, well, I have down here that it's a pastoral point, but I think that... uh, uh, much of what we have already saying, uh, been saying, uh, even if it could be said more adequately, uh, uh, I think you can appreciate um, the, uh, the the pastoral thrust. The um, I think it's useful in this whole area to make a distinction, not a separation, but a distinction. Remember how many, how much confusion has been injected into um, theology, as in every discipline, by confusing the distinction between a distinction and a separation. Uh, useful here is a distinction between what we could call an election perspective, a perspective, and a covenant perspective. An election perspective and a covenant perspective. And let me try to. Uh, I'm saying that I think, uh, particularly in, in, in preaching, in, in counseling ourselves and others, um, this uh, distinction is helpful. You see, from the perspective of God's election and his eternal purpose, any person, each person, and we can note here whether or not that person is a confessing Christian. Any person is either elect or rejected. As we might put it, from the perspective of God's eternal electing purpose, any person is either in or out. Definitively. Definitively in or out. But you see, just who those are into which of those two definitively uh, defined categories each person falls. This is a matter using Deuteronomy 29, and you'll see this is where um, what I'm calling a distinction between election perspective and a covenant perspective comes from. Um, uh, this, This definitive categorizing, that is a matter of those secret things that belong to the Lord our God. That is beyond our grasp. And let me just accent, even my own election is beyond my grasp in this sense. In the sense of, uh, it's beyond my grasp, in the sense of my somehow being taken up directly into God's eternal counsel. Sort of being lifted up out of history and, and looking over God's shoulder to see if my name is written down. I think there has been a lot of uh, futile, futile and, and um, counterproductive um, spiritual energy invested in in, in what is essentially that kind of project. Um, 
You see, in administering the life of the church, um, in our perceptions of others in the church, in our relating to one another in the church, and even in our perception of ourselves, in our own experience, we are always a people on the way. We are underway. We are there and we are not yet there. We are in the wilderness, to put it in the writer's terms. We are a people on the way. And you see, that is the covenantal perspective, if you will, to use the language of Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, the things, this is a matter of the things revealed that belong to us and to our children forever. And this is the, is the pastoral covenantal approach that is taken then by the writer of Hebrews. It's the perspective, by the way, you see, uh, the writer here builds on uh, the approach of Jesus in the parable of the sower or the seeds in Mark 4, 1 through 20 and its parallels. You see, what we have there. In, 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 in the planting of the word of the kingdom are various seeds, various growing seeds even. But with disastrous outcome for some. Now, let me go on then um, uh, to, to, to say this further. And this, uh, in a sense, ties into some of the... Uh, discussion that's already come up. Uh, what, when I've been emphasizing, as I have um, just of uh, 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 being careful uh, in an election perspective of trying to do what we can't do, get into the secret things of the Lord, this is not to say, now, this is not the emphasis I've been making is not at all to say that I can't know for sure that I'm elect. I am not wanting here uh, to break down confidence that I am unbreakably, inseparably united to Christ, that there is nothing, not even death itself, that can separate me from the love of my Lord Jesus. What I am wanting to uh, focus on here, what I am saying is that I don't know that. I don't know that by some past point of reference in my experience, no matter how memorable that might be. I know my election only in the mode of perseverance as I am presently persevering, as I am in the company of others who are on the way, some of whom may not persevere, will fall away. And what we need to recognize is that the for sure, I know for sure, 
the for sure of the knowledge of my election, of my justification, is always a variable. It is subject to the vicissitudes of our wilderness existence, our wilderness wanderings. And that's why uh, what the Westminster Confession of Faith has to say, uh, not at all in tension with, the, with, the, with say, the Heidelberg uh, Catechisms or the emphasis of the, of the Reformation, but what the Westminster Confession has to say in 14.3 uh, about certainty of faith uh, shows good uh, pastoral instinct and appreciation of, of considerations such as come out of the, um, uh, of the scriptures that we're considering here. Um, the, the, the point of being made there, uh, maybe I should just say, is that, that, the, that the assurance of faith, an infallible assurance, which may come to some, is not of the essence of saving faith. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, to bring another passage in, Romans 8.16, where Paul talks there about the witness of the Spirit to our spirit that we are God's children. We are God's children, notice. Present tense. That conjoint witness that is described by the apostles is not that the Spirit convinces me I became a child of God at a particular point in my past and my confidence is in that, but it is a confidence of who I am now. Now, again, surely that will, uh, that, that who I am now will, uh, may or may not, uh, it will certainly uh, point me uh, to, to something that has already taken place in my life, whether I uh, know about it or not. But you see, there is uh, an ultimate futility in trying to calculate whether my or someone else's faith in the past was genuine. More often, it's, it's when we're talking about others, but it may be ourselves. I'm saying there's an ultimate futility in trying to calculate that past because our memory, our memory is, not, is just not good enough. In uh, the seventh, uh, as a seventh point here, uh, let's focus in for a few moments uh, on what we've called the, per the election perspective. Um, the, uh, the, the secret things of election, uh, regeneration. If it were possible, keeping within that framework now, if it were possible for the elect, for those who are regenerate and justified, to fall irrevocably, that is, if it were possible for the elect, the regenerate, the justified, to lose their regeneration, their justification, then inevitably, if that were the case, and you understand that I'm posing a, a decided contrary to fact here, but if that were the case, then the question inevitably comes up. What sin now is it 
that results in this loss. What sin or perhaps set of transgressions produce this loss in distinction from sins which do not bring about that loss? That's the question that would have to come up unless we are uh, to assume that every sin, even the slightest and most inadvertent, causes that loss. Guess what we could define as kind of a hyper-Arminian tendency, which in fact uh, does exist. But if we leave that to the side... um, that it's not just uh, on, on, the, on the contrary to fact scenario that we're posing here, that uh, the elect, uh, regenerate, justified could actually lose that election, then the question would have to come, uh, what sin causes that in distinction from others that do not? But you see, that is in effect uh, what is happening here in effect is that we are make, taking recourse to what is well established as in Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic theology as a distinction between mortal and venial sins. We, in effect, whatever we would call it here, would be um, in trying to distinguish between what sins do and do not cause such a fall for the regenerate Um, we would be adopting, in effect, that Roman Catholic uh, distinction between mortal and venial sins. And that would mean we would find ourselves, as Rome does, whatever may be its efforts, uh, in some instances, to uh, to the contrary or to to resist, inevitably then we fall into uh, a a casuistry, a very confusing casuistry of trying to uh, discriminate between moral and venal and the, the moral perversion and legalism that that leads into. That will only unsettle the conscience and stifle Christian growth. So in other words, uh, I'm saying that, that, that shows that we, uh, on the assumption that this would somehow apply to those who have actually been um, um, elect and justified, that we would we would end up in, in a, we would end up in a dead end, a certain impasse. That impasse then points us to consider that in our passages in Hebrews, we have to do with a unique and entirely specific sin, a unique and I perhaps I should say almost uh, certainly most likely a quite specific sin. And um, so let, let, let's um, uh, focus um, there again. Um, look at, um, and I think that we're helped with what's in view in, in, the, in our Hebrews passages. If we now bring a couple of other uh, passages in the New Testament into our picture. Look at Matthew 12, 31, and 32 um, with its parallels that I'll um, 
for our purposes, we can, we can uh, keep a focus on the Mathean. Now, without going into the whole context here, I think uh, you may recall this is the situation where Jesus uh, heals the, uh, um, the demon-possessed uh, that is blind and dumb, unable to see, unable to speak. Uh, and that healing activity, apparently done in some public forum, has a, a decidedly opposite effect um, Part of the crowd um, poses a, a tentative kind of, of messianic faith. Is this perhaps the son of David? Uh, but the Pharisees, uh, on their side, follow a, a line of logic, if it can be called that, that this is the result of Satan. So we come in that context when Jesus sets things straight by saying he's done this by the uh, Spirit of God. This statement as kind of the the capstone of the pericope. On account of this, I tell you that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him in this age or in the age to come. So I want to draw, I think we need to draw a connection between that passage um, and its parallels in, in our, uh, the, the situation we have described in Hebrews. Or, uh, I think here we properly bring in 1 John 5.16. 1 John 5.16. Uh, let's just remind ourselves of what that says. <clears throat> if someone sees his brother sinning a sin that is not prosthonotone, not to death, he will ask and uh, understood uh, almost certainly the subject of being God. God will give life to him, that is, to the one who sins, not to death. There is hamartia prosthonotone, a sin to death. I do not say concerning that sin that you ask in effect, for forgiveness. Now, um, some comments um, on these passages, and, and uh, I think uh, these are things that we have, you, you may recall, we've already observed about um, what we see analyzing the passages in Hebrews. Uh, what is presupposed here is in these uh, passages, um, and again, I, I recognize I'm not arguing this, uh, I'm not doing careful exegesis here, and if, and if you have hesitations about um, anything I'm saying, uh, particularly whether the text supports it, um, uh, be sure to press me on that. I think what is being presupposed in these passages, even the Matthew passage, is Christian confession. And I'll try to bring out a little bit why, why I say that. Uh, Certainly, there is involved here an identification with the covenant community, that is, the church. Identification with the covenant community. And uh, the sin in view, presupposing that covenant identity, consists then in what appears to be a, a conscious, willful, deliberate repudiation of that identity. Willful repudiation of that confession. 
um, to try to bring out the, the depth, if you will, of the repudiation. Um, in his uh, Reformed Dogmatics commenting on this, on this passage, Herman Bovink uh, makes this distinction that's helpful, I think. He says that what's in view in these passages is a sin not only against the law of God, which, of course, all sin is. Not only is there involved here a sin against the law of God, but sin against the gospel of God in its clearest revelation. And and I would say it's just in terms of this factor of clarity, the clarity, uh, the clear-eyed, if you will. We can even, we almost hesitate to say that, but the the clear-eyed repudiation that's involved. Uh, I think that helps us to make a sense of uh, you know, the perennially puzzling statements in 12, 31, and 32. Um, let me try to just... Uh, nuts, we're going to get the bell. Um, well, as you can see, in, in, involved here is a distinction between speaking against the Son of Man and against the Holy Spirit. And I would say in, in, in understanding this statement and that distinction, which, which, which is in itself quite puzzling, um, you might expect me to say this, but let me say it anyway, uh, that the key here is to appreciate the redemptive historical perspective. The redemptive historical perspective that is involved here. That there is uh, present here uh, implicit but present a distinction between the present and the future. What Jesus is saying is that someone who speaks against the Son of Man uh, in, in, in his present veiled identity, that is forgivable. And perhaps... Um, let me, let me just um, finish off this thought and then we can uh, break. Um, the, the thought here perhaps is, is helpfully um, commented on for us by what Paul says about himself in 1 Timothy 1.13. He says he obtained mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. It's not as if that ignorance was somehow... Uh, non-culpable or innocent or excusable. But uh, it's an ignorance, it's an ignorant unbelief. An ignorant unbelief. And, and I think that that is, is what is involved in, in the Matthew 12 statement on the one side, the speaking against the Son of Man. But in contrast to that, what Jesus brings into view is what will come in the future with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And that is the Son of Man in His open resurrection glory. To speak against that glorified Son of Man in distinction from uh, the Son of Man presently veiled in humiliation, 
to speak against that glorified Son of Man, the life-giving Spirit, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15.45, that is unforgivable. Just as that glorified Jesus is revealed through the Gospel. So that what is involved here is, is um, perhaps we can, what Jesus is, is warning against here is attributing the eschatological work of the Holy Spirit as that is openly revealed in the death and resurrection, the glorification of Christ, attributing that eschatological work of the Spirit in Christ, attributing that to an evil spirit or the devil and you see, that's a strong warning to the Pharisees because that's just what they have done in the context. Verse 24, it's, it's old Beelzebub at work here. Okay. Um, um, it's, it's um, in other words, you see, it's looking toward future Christian confession. It's, it's, it's saying, in effect, in, in the context, he is warning the Pharisees just in view of impending, imminent revelation of messianic glory. The Son of Man coming on the, on, uh, in 1628. The Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Uh, and as that is already being anticipated, uh, pointed to in Jesus' earthly ministry in the exorcism that takes place in this passage. So that... Uh, you know, you have to see here uh, the original Sitzim Laban and then the Sitzim Laban of the evangelist writing after the exaltation, that it becomes, uh, um, you see, it, it's a warning presently to the church as in, in, in making Christian confession, and it's a warning then uh, originally as spoken by Jesus. Um, it's, it's a warning to the Pharisees, uh, you know, something to the effect, uh, you know, you can get away with that now, but the day is coming when you can't. Um, and in a similar uh, way, um, the First John 5 passage, um, what we can see in the uh, account uh, in, in the, in, is a large concern for John in this letter is uh, those who deny that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, that, 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 the, that the glorified Jesus has come in the flesh. Um, that, is, the, that is what he is primarily uh, concerned with throughout the letter. And um, at least the suggestion, I think, is, is, is in order here that this sin unto death is, 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 is wanton and deliberate denial uh, of that Jesus is that Jesus. Jesus.